Hello, it's Tuesday, December the 7th. I'm Andrew Pearce and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up... We're going to talk about quarantine hotels. They're an absolute rip-off. They're not very nice and they're also hugely expensive. And don't mention the food. Have you thought about renting a Christmas tree? I'm talking about a real Christmas tree, which you then give back, they plant it, and then you can rent it again next year. Cheaper than buying one too. Misogyny. The Law Commission says it should not be made a hate crime. Many women's rights campaigners are disappointed. But first, the whistleblower who says there was utter chaos in the Foreign Office when Dominic Raab was in charge, which affected the evacuation of thousands of people from Kabul airport when it fell to the Taliban. I'm talking to a former Afghan military commander who was also chairman of the COBRA Intelligence Committee. A whistleblower has called out Dominic Raab, the then Foreign Secretary, for what he says needlessly delaying decisions on evacuations from Afghanistan after the fall of Kabul in August. The former civil servant, Raphael Marshall, said Raab appeared not to understand the desperate situation at Kabul airport, often took several hours to approve evacuation cases for those people, including Afghan soldiers, translators and women's rights activists. Colonel Richard Kemp is the former British Army commander in Afghanistan and the former chairman of the Cobra Intelligence Group, who joins you now. Colonel Kemp, Dominic Raab is doing the, the broadcast round today. Uh, he thought he was going in to talk about his role as Justice Secretary because the Tory government wants to talk about crime, but he responded very robustly to these allegations by this civil servant, pointing out that 15,000 people were evacuated in two weeks. But the picture painted by the civil servant does suggest utter chaos. Yeah, well, the picture painted by the civil servant rings pretty true to me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that there were very many people in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office at the time um, who did an outstanding job and worked extremely hard around the clock. But the broad culture that's described by this whistleblower um, I think, you know, is something that's familiar. I worked in the Cabinet Office for several years and worked closely with the Foreign Office and other Whitehall departments during that time. And the culture was certainly one of a great difficulty, a great struggle in adapting from normal day-to-day routine life to dealing with a crisis. Um, and it was, uh, you know, I dealt with many crises during my time working with Cobra and getting um, Whitehall departments to actually man their desks and, and do their jobs round the clock when it was necessary to do so was an enormous struggle. Um, it's, you know, you had, you had, for example, armed forces on the ground as we had in Afghanistan over the evacuation period. But I'm thinking about before that, we had armed forces on the ground working round the clock 24-7, sometimes dying, fighting for their country. And back in Whitehall, very often, not in every case, of course, but in many cases, the support they needed was not on the same kind of footing. I wouldn't suggest we have the whole country on a war footing, but when we have a crisis like this, we, we do need to have the key departments and the key elements of those departments dropping everything, forgetting holidays, forgetting weekends, forgetting time off, and just getting on and doing the job. And that does not seem to have happened in that case, and it didn't happen very often in my experience as well. It, it seems too, because of COVID, because of lockdown, although it was August when we weren't in lockdown, 
a vast, the vast majority of civil servants who were involved in this uh, evacuation process were working from home. Now, I'm not saying that they were swinging the lead or skiving off, but you would have sensed if there was dozens of them working in the same room, there would be a sense that the sense of crisis would be engendered by the conversations, by the phone calls, by the emails, which I suspect didn't happen because they were all working remotely. Yeah, I don't think it's possible to run a crisis of that nature on that scale by remote working. It's maybe in one or two cases, but the vast majority of people should have been summoned straight in to get into their desks, get into their offices, get into the crisis control centers and do their jobs, whatever. What, and, you know, I, I would say even irrespective of COVID, obviously precautions need to be taken. Mm. But there's a much greater crisis going on than COVID in Afghanistan at the time. And, and it couldn't be done from someone's sitting room or whatever, you know, with the best will in the world in most cases. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that certainly, uh, I think, was, was a contributing factor. And that, that should have been gripped by senior civil servants many of whom I suspect were, were clinging to the desire to, to maintain this work-life balance that the whistleblower also spoke of, mm. um, which, which in many ways, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's obviously important during normal times, but it's also a form of virtue signaling, which I think shouldn't be the highest priority. The highest priority shouldn't be maintaining work-life balance, it should be getting the job done, and particularly in these kind of circumstances. The the um, there's a suggestion to Colonel Kemp. I mean, this newspaper, the Daily Mail, campaigned for a long time to get the translators out of Afghanistan, and that months and months were wasted. Perhaps some of these evacuations should have taken place much sooner. Now we know the Kabul fell much quicker than expected, and that the American uh, withdrawal was much more rapid too. But perhaps that was a mistake as well, Colonel Kemp. Well, it was a big mistake, and the, the evacuations, the vast majority of the evacuations, should have taken place in the months before, the minute President Biden confirmed he was leaving yeah. Afghanistan unconditionally and completely. That's when the evacuation should have begun. Um, and had that happened, a lot more people's lives would have been saved, a lot more people would have been got out, and that crisis, that panic situation in Afghanistan, would, it would have still occurred, but it wouldn't have been on anything like the same scale. And I think, I think this reflects a, um, a complete uh, failure, I would say, in, in the assessment by the UK and the US of the consequence of a President Biden withdrawal. And we've heard this you know, several times, we heard it at the time, that there was a misappreciation of what the Afghan government, what the Afghan National Security Forces were capable of. Um, and and, and you know, the, a, lot of, a lot of the terrible results occurred as a result of that so yes if if this is if, if the plan had been put into action and and dealt with months before started at least months before then we would not have been facing this uh, catastrophe we faced in the summer indeed that's colonel richard kemp former british army commander in afghanistan who was chairman of the cobra uh, intelligence committee thanks so much for joining us Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pierce Show for free and in full, along with our other podcasts and our video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So the Law Commission has rejected a proposal to make misogyny a hate crime. The Commission said they found the change could create hierarchies of victims 
and make rape and domestic abuse prosecutions more difficult. But a coalition of women's rights campaigners has released a statement saying the Law Commission has failed to address widespread concerns about lack of action by the criminal justice system and vowed to keep fighting. Andrew Baisley is the Policy and Insight Manager at the Fawcett Society. Andrew, um, it's curious when you consider how much women's concerns over policing, law and order has been a big issue this year. I'm thinking about the murder of Sarah Everard, for instance. And yet here, the Law Commission has chucked out something that would have um, made misogyny a hate crime. It's a real missed opportunity. Um, I think the uh, what's important to state is that hate crime against women isn't just about sexual harassment. It's full range from a Muslim woman having a headscarf ripped off um, in public to um, the uh, intersectional um, abuse that uh, Jewish women face to, for example, the uh, online abuse that um, women in public life face as well. Um, and that's the kind of um, the kind of misogyny that we wanted to name within uh, the criminal justice system. It's uh, it's about talking about the drivers of uh, more you know, severe um, instances of uh, violence against women and girls that at the moment the legal system just doesn't have the ability to name. So that's why it's a real disappointment that the Law Commission has, uh, has made the recommendation they have. Now, um, wh- what happens now? I mean, the Commission makes a recommendation, but it's, at the end of the day, it's up to the government, isn't it? That's absolutely right. Um, the Commission has made some uh, suggestions which we think are positive. So they've um, said that the act of stirring up hate against women uh, at the level of severity that we see with some of the sort of incel conversations online, which we've seen already lead to multiple um, murders, but that should be um, criminalised and we do welcome that. Um, and uh, similarly, we are glad that they've suggested that the government should look at um, the law around public sexual harassment and strengthening that. Those are both positive steps, which we hope the government will take forward. But we will um, not stop campaigning on this issue. Um, as you say, uh, the, the Law Commission makes recommendations and uh, Parliament makes the laws. So we'll be um, looking to use them to hold government account. Uh, to account both for um, uh, whether they'll take forward the overall point around misogyny and hate crime and also for um, seeing through the commitment they've already made to doing one specific element of the misogyny hate crime package which is uh, police forces recording incidents so that they can uh, respond better to women who come to them with um, complaints and so that they can get a better map of how misogyny is, is happening in their local area. I guess the government could say they're bringing forward an online um, uh, a bill is being brought forward by the culture department about online uh, online abuse about um, uh, pornography. Uh, it might they are could the government argue or could the law commission argue perhaps that um, uh, online abuse, which is a very ba- bad problem, particularly for women. I'm thinking about some women MPs, for instance, Diane Abbott, who suffers the most appalling levels of abuse. That that might be covered by an online bill. So it's important to say around hate crime that it's about naming the, uh, the motivations and the hostility that underlies crimes. So it's important that we do have the actual crimes right in the first place. Uh, the Law Commission is look, has looked at online communications and made some recommendations there. I would say that the online safety bill, um, which the government is taking through, um, is quite world-leading in um, terms of looking to regulate um, online harms, but it really doesn't recognise uh, gendered harms. It's very much, and understandably, of course, it's hugely serious issues focused on child sex, uh, sexual exploitation and terrorism. It's really very blind to the damage that um, uh, the, inter- uh, the online harms do to, uh, to women and girls. 
So um, that's uh, something that we and uh, coalitions of others um, are campaigning to get better recognised too. So can I ask you, where do you go from this now? Uh, the Fawcett Society is an influential organisation. You've been campaigning on women's rights for years and years. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you hope this is going to be taken up by MPs in Parliament who perhaps may um, challenge the Law Commission? So I think there's, um, I think it's, it's clear there's a disagreement between us and the Law Commission on some of the detail of how implementable um, misogyny as a hate crime is. Um, and I, I think, I do think that we, we're on the right side and that they've, um, they've got it wrong in this instance. So we will be looking to campaign in, in Parliament on this. Um, as I said, there is also the government who um, have committed to um, recording incidents of hate crime, but they haven't actually enacted that yet. That hasn't that, that commitment hasn't been seen through with the police forces. So we'll really be pushing hard on that point as well. All right, that's Andrew Basie. He's the Policy and Insight Manager at the Fawcett Society. Thanks for joining me. Visit melplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Then you can get access to our podcast, videos, opinion pieces and much more. Also, you can get in touch by tweeting us at melplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. British travellers in South Africa got a nasty shock when the country was placed on the red list following the discovery of the Omicron variant of COVID-19. It means travellers returning from a red list country have to be quarantined for 10 days and they have to pay £2,285 for the pleasure, except it's not much for pleasure. Francesca Duquesne is the founder of Leap Services, which is a virtual uh, services company and is currently in a quarantine hotel. And she joins me on the line. Francesca. Where are you? What part of the country? I'm currently sitting in the Holiday Inn Express Terminal 4, uh, Heathrow, London, Andrew. (laughs) Right. And um, we've read various reports of people saying these hotels are not great. What's yours like? Look, the room is a bog standard, general standard Holiday Inn. Anything you would expect to find. Um, It's 15 square metres. It has a bed, double bed. Um, It's got a small table you can work at. I wouldn't say it was adequate for working at it long term and a bathroom with a shower. Um, So the room is clean and tidy. Um, It's got windows that don't open. Um, I thought thought ventilation was really important with COVID. So did we. But um, we have air conditioning, but I'm not sure if that's connected to other rooms or not. Oh, Um, dear. And you don't have a fridge either. No fridge, um, no. Um, it does have an iron and an ironing board. Um, I was allowed, we were given crockery and cutlery when we came in. That was So you get two plates, two bowls, uh, two sets of uh, knives and forks, and that was all cling film wrapped. Um, we've been given a tea towel, some fairy up liquid, and a um, scrub so that you can wash those plates in the bathroom sink. God, and what about the <laughs> food? Is- you're painting the such a grim picture already. Is it atrocious? It, Te- it is atrocious? Tell us about the food. How bad is it? It's atrocious. Tell us something about it. Um, yesterday, uh, so Sunday was my first experience of having proper food. I didn't eat Saturdays because I was too late. Um, Sunday morning came in a brown paper bag. It's knocked outside your door. I opened a Tupperware container to two hard-boiled eggs, some mushrooms and two hash browns. Oh, Gross. <laughs> lunch was vegetable quiche served with carrots and some carrot and some uh, coriander soup by the time you actually opened it it's all served in like takeaway containers mm. it was lukewarm you could put your finger in the soup it was oh, that no. cold it's not good um, is it and then i think the highlight was the vegetable casserole that just looked like I, there was no rice or anything with it it was just vegetable casserole it came with some like herb crusted potatoes and beans but 
yeah again that, I that was your dinner was that. it yes I, and i didn't eat it i sent it back and can you leave your room francesca you can leave your room for exercise during the day. You're meant to actually ring reception or security. The number for security is never answered. Reception takes forever. So we tend now to leave the room. There's a security guard at the end of each corridor and you just say that you want to go for exercise and we're just starting to walk out now to go for exercise. Um, and you can go for about, I think the maximum I've had is an hour in a day. Right. Good Lord. And you've got 10 and days of this hell. You're escorted all the way down to a lift. You go all the way down a one-way system into the hotel, across the connecting um, arches that used to lead you to Terminal 4, that lead you to a car park. You go down a set of metal steps and you can walk around a car park uh, for about an hour. Gee, the spectacular scenery that that, that walk affords you. Um, and what about in the evening, uh, Francesca? You're stuck in your room. You've got a TV, presumably. That's about it. You have a TV, that's about it. We did get given a hotel welcome pack that told you that you could do some, and it's advised that you do exercise in your room. I'm not quite sure where you would do that without hurting yourself because there isn't... There's no room. room. To, no, there isn't room. So it's basically a TV. Um, you've got access to BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub and Channel 4. That's obviously a, the, the apps, if you've signed up to them, then you can sign up to them. But each time you turn your TV off, you have to kind of re-sign up to it each time or pair your device. So it's just, yeah, it's not brilliant. <laughs> no, and this, and this is costing you. Um, it, are you there with your partner? No, I'm here on my own. £2,300, give or take. That's a lot of money. Yes. Do, you bit, do you bitterly resent it? Um, I, I would, no, I don't. I understand that we have to quarantine. But what right. I would like to see is a breakdown of the costs because I don't think that what we're paying is what we're getting value for money for because the hotel room must be like £80 a night maximum. Two COVID tests are at £120. So where's the rest of that money? It said it's going across security, the transport and food. Well, I wouldn't pay for the food. I wouldn't feed this to anybody. Um, I ordered a takeaway last night. My colleagues from work were very kind, ordered me a takeaway from work. It yeah. arrived. It never made it to my room. Oh. The security team still can't tell me where it is. <laughs> they probably ate it. But I think they did. So last night I went hungry because I was expecting the takeaway um, and I didn't get anything. Can you? Is the, is, the, is the bar open? Are you allowed to go to the hotel bar? Not allowed anywhere. You can only go literally as soon as you go out your room. You have to go downstairs. You have a security man all the time. They take your oh. room number at certain stages and then back in. You're not even... I tried to speak to the security team this afternoon. I was told off if I was sitting downstairs in the lobby. Not allowed. <laughs> How many days have you got to go? This is day three, so seven. Can we call you again next week to see how you're getting on? You are more than welcome to call me next week to see how I'm getting on. I'm lucky now I have a room with a view, but the first room that they put me in on Saturday night had a room of an atrium that has a ceiling that's covered, so you couldn't even see natural daylight. <laughs> What's your view now? And uh, Heathrow Terminal 4. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be worse. It could be the atrium. It could be worse. At least I can see the sky and you can see, you know that you're not just stuck in a real prison, if that makes sense. It does. You can see no, it does. and life and the weather and... That means more to me for my mental health than actually yes. I, I tried to explain to the reception. 
Yeah, yeah well, right. look, Fr Francesco, thanks for coming on and talking to us, and thanks for being so stoical. Um, I think I'd be pulling my hair out and cl crawling up the wallpaper by now. I don't know how couples are doing it that have to work. I don't know how families are doing it with one ch young children. Must be I think that must be hellish. Hardest. I, yeah. yeah, I walked past someone who had a couple of young children earlier. I mean, looking it's harassed. Not yeah, very difficult, very difficult. And these tiny rooms too, not great for relationships, are they? Uh, relationships, mental health, um, just anything. I think I just don't think it's. I don't think it's very good for anybody's mental health. The government need to realise that, and I would challenge any MP to come and do this for ten days and tell me it's acceptable. Well, you know that's a very good point. We'll put that next ne next MP we get on uh, Tory MP because it's their rules. Um, next Tory MP yep. we get on the podcast, we'll ask them would they like to try it. But I don't suppose they want to pay two thousand two hundred and eighty five pounds, though, Francesca. I don't think anybody wants to. I would. No. I would have been happy to even pay two thousand two hundred eighty five pounds and gone home. Yes. Because at least then you know. Yeah, exactly. But they, they need to look at trying to sort out policing it better because this is this is closing the door after the horse has bolted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there's um, it's it's becoming quite an issue. Uh, a lot of the newspapers are writing about it this week, Francesca, and it's all over the broadcast media too. And um, we're doing our bit here on our podcast here. So, Francesca, thank you for joining us. I'm sorry it's so bleak and grim. I'm sorry I can bring you no I'm... cheer whatsoever. But, um, oh, no, speaking to people and making people aware of it is actually a good thing. Yeah, I think, I think that is a good thing. That, that's helping. It's All right. making well, something I'm, positive out of a bad situation. Well, <laughs> I'm, I hope we've helped a little bit, Francesca, and I hope we can come and talk to you again before this nightmare comes to an end for you. You're more than welcome. It was All right, Francesca. Easy. Great to talk to you. That's Francesca DeCane, who's the founder of Leap Services. Google it. It's a really interesting company. OK, so it's now time for our regular City Update with Hugo Duncan, Deputy Finance Editor at the Daily Mail. Well, this has been a big campaign for your pages, Hugo. Liverpool, Victoria, one of our oldest insurers, known as LV, the big vote. What's going to happen? Well, uh, Andrew, that's right. So there was a bid from private equity around a year ago now, £530 million offered for... Um, LV to take it over to demutualize it. Now, of course, LV being a mutual is owned by its members, around 1.2 million of them, and they get to vote on it. And the main part of the vote um, is it, sort of the, the deadline um, is, is tomorrow. Members have to vote either by post or online on their online portal by 2 p.m. on Wednesday. Um, there is then a there are then further votes on Friday when the official meetings to either sanction or reject this deal take place. But what sort of tends to happen on these things is, is that more people will take part online in the weeks leading up to it than, mm. than, than on the actual day itself. Although, of course, you know we'll, we'll have to see what turnout is. So. Um, LV and Bain Capital, the, 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 the bosses who want to sell to Bain Capital and obviously Bain Capital who want to buy LV, they need to get 75% of those who vote to approve the deal. And there is, of course, no guarantee that they will, they will get that. Very interesting. Uh, the uh, the bosses presumably will do very nicely out of it, will they? If Bain Capital take over, well, they they uh, insist, of course, they will do nothing. Uh, they will get nothing from the deal itself, but. If the takeover happens, um, uh, the, 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 the thoughts are that the chairman, Alan Cook, will stay on for another two years collecting his quite handsome fees. And the boss, the chief executive, Mark Hartigan, um, will, of course, then be working for a private equity company rather than a mm. mutual. And one um, might 
uh, suspect that the uh, that the package that he is on under such circumstances might be rather better than what he's on now, which of course isn't too bad. He did earn one point two million pounds last year anyway. Oh, very nice too. Uh, so when do we get the vote? Well, so we won't get results tomorrow. Um, I don't think that's just when the closing of the uh, the closing of the online portal and the postal vote finishes. But we will get votes hopefully very soon after the meetings finish on Friday. The final meeting takes place at 4 p.m. There will be voting during that. So hopefully we shall know on Friday evening um, as to whether LV has fallen into the hands of American private equity or remains um, an independent mutual owned by its members. Which is exactly the outcome we want. It's being in, to, to remain an independent mutual owned by its members. Let's hope that's 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 what happens. But you never know. That's Hugo Duncan, deputy finance editor at the Daily Mail. So it's part of the Christmas tradition: the Christmas tree, the baubles, the fairies, the the chocolates on side. But should we be buying Christmas trees? Are they bad for the environment? Some people think so, and if so. What should we do? Georgina Wilson-Powell is the author of Is It Really Green? And she's also publisher of The Pebble magazine. Now, Georgina, um, I have a very small tree uh, and I like it. Now, you think I probably shouldn't have one. Um, well, in general, the most sustainable thing to... The most sustainable choice is the thing that you already own. So if you've already got an artificial tree, keep it, use it as long as possible. There's no right. reason to just dump it and start again. But if you are looking to buy a new tree, then I would definitely recommend a real tree over an artificial one. Right. Uh, and what sort, is there any sort of tree that is more uh, sustainable? So if you're going for a real tree, 95% um, of them are actually grown in the UK. Um, and they're actually grown a lot of the time on local farms. They provide a habitat for wildlife. And they're grown for seven years. So they provide a carbon sink for all that time. So they are doing good as they're growing. Um, but in terms of making it even more sustainable, um, definitely look for potted trees so that you can replant them in the garden and perhaps use them next year. Or there's even a couple of firms um, that now rent trees so you can borrow them for the Christmas period and then they take them back and plant them for next year, which is probably the best thing that you could do. That's a really interesting idea. So is that a, fun, is that a, yeah, is that a new con a new con pretty new concept, Christmas tree rental companies? I think it's been around for a few years, but it's definitely growing and the availability has got a lot more in the last couple of years. There are even a couple of people who will do it so you can have the same tree each year and it sort of grows with you and your family, ah, which I yeah. think is a lovely, a lovely way to sort of tackle the problem. So, and I'm just looking here, the Christmas Tree Rental Company, they charge you £55 for three weeks plus a £20 deposit, which you get back. Well, I mean, a large Christmas tree, I think, costs a lot more than £55, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I saw I saw sort of three footers for about forty pounds at the weekend. So that doesn't amazing, that bad. isn't it? So expensive, some of them. Uh, so what do you do, um, Georgina? What will you be doing this Christmas? Um, so we've got a small potted tree um, right. this year. Um, so I'm actually with, with it's not, I'm not in my own home this year. So we've we've sort of compromised and got a a, a potted tree, um, which we'll be planting in the garden afterwards. Right. And, and I'm told here the Carbon Trust estimates that a two metre artificial tree has a carbon footprint of more than twice that of a real tree that ends its life in landfill and more than 10 times that of real trees that are burnt. It's interesting. It is. And, and also the, so the artificial trees are made the other side of the world. They're made from sort of byproducts of, of petrol and oil. And actually right. every artificial tree that's ever been made is still in landfill. They don't they don't biodegrade, they don't go anywhere, which oh, I think is really sad. 
Yes. <laughs> so even if you are, um, you know, throwing out your real tree, as long as it's being wood chipped or, um, you know, being disposed of responsibly, um, most councils will come pick them up, for example, um, then it does have a much smaller impact. Right. And um, apparently, the, do you know, the Christmas tree rental company, they're sold out. Well, it's quite uh, late, isn't it? Everyone seems to have got their trees really early this year. Yeah, um, I think it's because people are fed up and miserable after all the terrible time with COVID. And I think they want to be nice and festive and Christmassy a bit absolutely. earlier this year. And I don't, uh, right now, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think we all need no, to be I, I agree with you. Well, um, very good. So you've, you've converted me. I'm thinking I'm going to look at this Christmas tree rental idea. Uh, although it won't be this year because I say they've sold out. But the alternative a potted tree and i know exactly where i can get one from uh, and will you plant yours in your garden when you've um, finished with it Georgina? i'll be planting it in my mum's garden yeah <laughs> your mum's garden very good very good all right then well thank you for that that's georgina wilson power she's the author of is it really green and she's also publisher of the pebble magazine telling us about a fascinating new concept christmas tree rentals fascinating <laughs> That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I am Andrew Pearce. This is The Andrew Pearce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. (laughs) 